0: meanwhile today had to whisper to myself very softly and gently don't cry over drill bits don't cry over drill bits because i tried and failed three times to hang a curtain (laughs) it's been a rough day (laughs) that's not a hard task to do and yet somehow i messed it up and so i just took these really big nails that i have and like hammered them into the wall and hung the curtain rod on it. It's not stable. I will be fixing it soon, but I do have pretty curtains hanging up in my (laughs) loft slash podcast loft slash office.
1: The light looks so good. You look beautiful. I'm upset, actually, because I'm over here like, (sighs) I'm a gremlin, (laughs) a sweaty, overheated gremlin.
0: I redid my loft this weekend. Well, I started the process of redoing the loft this weekend, so I painted the wall that I'm looking at a charcoal gray and I moved a lamp. So now you're seeing me basked in the glow of a lamp Mm. instead of my overhead
1: light backlighting me. Right, right. Get that good lighting. Show off that jawline. Yes. Skin, flawless, hair, Mm. glowing. You are perfection.
0: (laughs) Yes. I love
1: it. Oh, this is, these are the words of affirmation
0: that I need.
1: It's I'm in such a hype man mood lately where whenever I think of nice things about people that I love, I now I've lately just been saying them and I feel like it seems disingenuous because I'm just constantly like complimenting people. Yeah, I'm just so excited about my friends. <laughs> the other day after streaming uh so after streaming you know we all kind of stay on the zoom call for a little bit because it's fun but this time we all went online shopping together on the zoom call while still in full princess garb oh my god and it was seriously just a back and forth of someone going I like this, but I'm not sure. And then everyone going, oh, my gosh, that would look so good on you because X, Y, Z. Or someone going, you deserve it. You've earned it. (laughs) Well, then there was, oh, my God, uh, you know, Kaylee, this dress, it's your color. And then there's no one should buy that garment. It doesn't look good for any human being. (laughs) (laughs) It was the whole thing was just very fun. I, uh, I have a pair of trip pants waiting in a in an online shopping cart
0: for me. Oh my god that's amazing. I can't buy anything ever again because I spent all my money redoing my loft slash office.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, I'm moving shortly so I I really the only purchases I get to rationalize right now are work purchases which weirdly one of those work purchases was a pack of scrunchies. <laughs> We have different jobs. <laughs> oh, but they're shimmery scrunchies, Tracy. Oh, well, now it makes sense. Right, right. <laughs> so that glittery
0: princess over there is none other than Rowan Hall. Ooh,
1: ooh, thank you. Mm, anytime. And that spooky, beautiful queen on the East Coast is Tracy Harrison. <laughs>
0: Ooh, you just, you just voluntarily gave me an even higher title, and for that I am honored and grateful. And I'll use my spooky evil queenness to eliminate whoever I need to <laughs> so that you can become a glittery spooky queen.
1: <laughs> Only because it's you do you get an even better title. <laughs> Well, the title of this podcast, everyone, is Willing and Fable, and we are a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. Also, really quick, can we talk about my smooth, smooth transition?
0: Oh, yeah. Although, is that one of those things, like, if you acknowledge a cool thing you did
1: it's not cool anymore no i told you this is my week of being a hype man
0: (laughs) and good for you a hype man for yourself as well yes that was a smooth transition i love it i'm gonna like probably dream about it tonight and just (laughs) think about it for a while you know yes
1: glitter princess
0: (laughs) okay rowan yes i don't know how much you remember about our pre-planning office hours when we first started willing and fable
1: Oh, so little. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this episode marks what would have been the end of our first season, except don't worry, you guys, it's not the end of our first season. We're, we're keeping this hype train going.
1: See, I actually do know that because the Willing and Fable podcast has the most massive spreadsheet that Tracy and I live and die by, and this episode is bolded and it's sparkly. Let's just say that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we did it. We have recorded 15 episodes of a podcast together. It started with life, it's ending with death, except it's not ending and we're going to keep on going.
1: Okay, really quick. Tracy, tell them what happens after this cuz I'm so excited about it. I just I don't want to just leave one giant cliffhanger of we should have been done, but we're not. <laughs>
0: So after this episode, we are so excited about this. This is something that we have been planning and working on since I don't know, episode 4 or 5. Oh yeah. <laughs> we are going to do a three episode series called Whiskey and Fable in which we bring in an actual historian and whiskey aficionado and dear friend of ours, and dear friend of ours Tim Black.
1: Yes, and he is going to teach us all about the history of whiskey while we get to sit back, relax, and drink said whiskey. It's the ultimate three-part series, guys. And it's going to start next week. And then after that, just so everyone feels comfortable, I don't want anyone to think that there's just some giant cliff that this podcast is is disappearing (laughs) off of. After Whiskey and Fable, it's spooky season. Mm-hmm. hmm and poor Tracy has had to hear me talk about our spooky season lineup since before we even had a regular lineup.
0: <laughs> <laughs> She's really excited about the spooky season lineup, you guys. We both love like the Halloween aesthetic spooky season so much that one time both Jamie and I accidentally said it's Halloween first instead of it's October 1st when someone asked.
1: I stand by that, actually. Right?
0: Although now we're pushing it to September. So starting in in September is when my spooky season internally begins.
1: Yes, you got your first pumpkin spice latte the other day.
0: It was so good. I always get it with an extra shot of espresso and only two pumps of pumpkin spice instead of four. Mm. So it's not as sweet and it's extra caffeinated.
1: I have to say, as an individual person with taste buds, I am a pumpkin spice flavor hater. But mm-hmm. as a person, I think anyone who hates on other people for liking pumpkin spice is a jerk.
0: I agree. And I used to be someone who was like, I don't drink pumpkin spice lattes. For what? So I could deny myself a drink I enjoy to get a, a, a an I'm a not a, a basic girl card from no one like why was i doing that to myself so i am proudly pumpkin spice latte i have a trade-off because my twin sister jamie hates everything pumpkin flavored as well same i don't like mint as a flavor i don't like peppermint mixed with things same so but okay so but she does so like while i'm hyped for all of fall she's hyped for all of winter so it, it evens out but anyone who hates on anyone else for doing something that
1: literally affects no one else Why? Okay, while we're in basic territory, I'm going to admit something real basic about myself. So, you know, there's this whole thing of when teenage girls start to like something, it's supposed to become somehow uncool. Mm -hmm. See, pumpkin spice lattes. Last year, I got a pair of Uggs Mm -hmm. because they are the ultimate on-set shoe. If you're acting in a piece where it's cold and you're usually wearing heels or whatever, you can just slip them off and put on your fuzzy fuzzy Ugg boots. They are amazing. (laughs) We don't have to hate on them just because other people love them. (laughs) Right? Like it's 2020, everything else is
0: on fire. Let's just let people like what they like. I am so mad at myself that for a few years there, I would not order a pumpkin spice latte. To impress no one. It got me nothing. And you know what? Getting a pumpkin spice latte gets me? A pumpkin spice latte.
1: As no one, I want to say that I was super unimpressed by that choice. And now (laughs) that you're on the good side, I'm just blown away. (laughs) Just really, just crushing it 24-7,
0: getting those gains, gripping it and ripping it. It's incredible. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay, I promise this will be the last bit of random information before I say the thing that I'm supposed to say next. Um, <laughs> you guys will remember during this podcast journey, Tracy and I have kind of talked about our off-again, on-again relationship with working out during quarantine. Oh, I'm back to off again. <laughs> uh, well, all I want to say about it is that Tracy's friend, Mm-hmm. Casey invited mm-hmm. me into their Zoom group where she leads Zumba for everybody. Oh, yeah. And it is the best thing. I felt so special getting to be in the group, but then I couldn't breathe and the next day I couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it I was know. awesome. This girl
0: leads Zumba for us once a week, although usually there's a surprise like Tuesday mm-hmm. night or something. She practices them all beforehand and then this past week she did two sessions because half of us couldn't go to one so she did another one so this girl not only does all the moves full out she does it multiple times a day like she is the most insane person i know and she makes it so fun like we're all dying and not able to breathe and she's like you guys did such a great job it was, wasn't was that fun didn't you like didn't you enjoy it? like it is you guys i look forward every week to casey zumba
1: Everyone claps when there's a song break. I thought I was going to be so embarrassed because I was on a video call and I kept losing time with the song because I had no idea what was going on. And everyone was so sweet. And Casey has made the most confidence-boosting playlist I have ever heard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I already have them downloaded onto my Spotify.
0: (laughs) Should we share them with People in the Discord, if they want to hype themselves up, listen to Casey Zumba. Would Casey playlists.
1: let us? I'll ask her. Oh my god! All right, guys, we're gonna to talk to Casey, confidence queen, and see if she'll let us share these really amazing playlists. And here's the part where I say the thing that I'm supposed to say. So, <laughs> instead of telling you ancient tales about the end of the world, which was absolutely our plan for this episode, <laughs> it was we're actually going to talk about two relatively recent predictions about the end of everything that did not quite come true originally we titled this episode apocalypse but tracy learned something about the word that neither of us knew
0: according to merriam webster apocalypse is defined as one of the Jewish and Christian writings of 200 BC to AD 150, marked by pseudonymity, symbolic imagery, and the expectation of an imminent cosmic cataclysm in which God destroys the ruling powers of evil and raises the righteous to life. Basically, the word apocalypse means an Abrahamic, specifically Jewish and Christian, end of the world. Think
1: Book of Revelations.
0: Colloquially, we just say it as everything ends, but that's not what the word actually means.
1: Yes, and the colloquial definition, according to Merriam-Webster, is just a great disaster. But since neither of us went even close to an Abrahamic Jewish Christian story... Not even a little bit. No, um, we're just going to stick with the world was supposed to end and it did not.
0: All right, so with that out of the way, I want to hear Rowan's story. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you don't. Why are you listening? But I want to hear Rowan's story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Don't stop now. Okay. Right after the clock hit 12 in the morning on January 2000, I felt as if my mind went into a tremendous dark blank, filled right afterwards with emptiness and sorrow. The experience had never occurred to me in the past. It was and still is very frightening. Today, every time I write the numbers 00 or 2000 to indicate the present year, I feel as if I had lost one of the most precious things in my life. Can someone tell me what is happening? Do others feel the same way? I am male, 53 years of age, father of three, and very curious about almost everything. Was my internal clock trying to reset to this millennium transfer or am I beginning to lose it? Juan C. Gonzalez, Dallas, Texas, as written into The Scientific American and reported on January 17, 2000. Whoa, that, that is wild. So today, if you haven't already guessed it, I am covering Y2K or the Millennium Bug. I'm excited about this because as a big IT
0: nerd, I know a bunch of people who've talked about what it was like working as a programmer during this time.
1: Do you have any idea how stressful it is to choose to cover the computer-based end of the world when your podcast partner is an IT professional? What uh, the uh, actual heck was I thinking? I hope it
0: wasn't too bad. It's probably probably it should be less stressful for you to cover it because I can always help you out as opposed to me covering it and then everyone realizing what an actual fool I am because I don't know as much about IT as I should although every IT person thinks they don't know enough about IT it's kind of like par for the course
1: well I don't think I know enough about IT which must make me an IT person so for the next some odd minutes I'm gonna try (laughs) I believe in you. Go, Rowan.
0: Look at you. You're so smart and beautiful and talented. Oh, look at her go.
1: Hype train. Okay. So before I say anything useful about IT at all, I actually want to talk about fashion. There is, as the internet has informed me, something called Y2K aesthetic. You know why I know about this? Why?
0: My friend and listener... Seb, hi Seb, is obsessed with like, vaporwave, cyberpunk (sighs) aesthetic.
1: I read so much about vaporwave before I realized that I absolutely did not need to read that for any reason to tell this story.
0: Oh, that sums up research in a nutshell. Anyway, go on, I'll stop distracting you.
1: No, no, I mean, you guys know Tracy and I love a strong vibe. And that's why I dove down the rabbit hole with the Y2K aesthetic. So the only thing that I can remember about Y2K, the only thought I can remember giving to it in any capacity was that I, in my childhood, acquired a Y2K Beanie Baby. I have no idea how I came to own it, but it was covered in rainbow confetti And it was super huggable. Um, I used to go antiquing with my parents and tons of booths had boxes of Beanie Babies they sold for a couple of bucks and they kept the boxes at kid height. So I'm sure my parents were super excited about cheap, lasting entertainment for me when they found that. For anyone who's thinking that I could have made hundreds of dollars if I still had that beanie baby, don't get too excited. They're only selling for nine to 45 bucks on Etsy.
0: Yeah, that beanie baby thing didn't really work out the way a lot of people thought
1: it would. I had so many beanie babies. We all did. Yeah, I, they were not precious. They were just no, cute. They were cute. I had so many beanie babies and so many Pokemon cards. Oh, my God. My Pokemon card collection was actually stupid. It was so big. Same. I had a whole
0: binder for it. Because, again, remember, mine was hand-me-down from my my older
1: sister's. Do you remember when a certain boy who will not be named broke up with me in first grade over a Charmander? I can't believe I
0: actually do remember
1: that. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I remember that. This is my favorite breakup story ever. So I was in first grade. Apparently, I decided that this boy was my boyfriend. We decided, I should say, we both decided that we were a super official first grade couple. Mm -hmm. He traded me a Charmander, which for the record, no one in their right mind except me who liked all the cute Pokemon would ever want that card. I later traded it away. And he wanted it back. Full-on take sees he wanted it back. Not trade it back. Oh, no. I know. And I had already since gotten rid of it. And he was so upset that he wouldn't talk to me. And I had a Pokemon video game at the time where you could make fake cards. And so I made him a Charmander card on the computer, which was very difficult, and I went over to his house to give it to him, and he broke up with me. So.
0: So the moral of the story is, uh, Charmander?
1: No, the moral of this story is Charmander trumps boyfriend every single time. See? The moral of the story is Charmander. (laughs) So that was a total digression. (laughs) A quote from Lee Alexander, writing for The Guardian. The angsty 1990s were behind us. The dot-com bubble was swelling, and yet to come was the market bust and the war on terror. Y2K, the supposed turn-of-the-century bug that would bring our infrastructure to a terrifying halt, had failed to materialize. And for a brief moment, there was nothing but glittering, utopian futurism and faith in a new age of boundless possibility. We're looking at the style coming from about 1998 to 2003, which isn't actually that long. If you're picturing brightly colored Mac computers, The Matrix, leather pants, weirdly shiny everything, hot, short-haired Angelina Jolie circa hackers, TLC boy bands, and images of mirror balls and abstract landscapes, what? Then you are right on track with what my Google search gifted me. Oh, and also so much baby pink. So much baby pink, but
0: not the quote-unquote millennial pink that's like a subdued, cool-toned, pale pink. It was like
1: powder, bright baby pink. My mom and I actually have a name for this shade of pink, Ooh, and it can it? only be this shade of pink. It's Pank Pink. We go, pank, like like a honking (laughs) goose. Whenever we're talking about it, we go, pank. (laughs) I don't know why we try to turn that word into a goose honk, but there you go. It's because that's what it feels like (laughs) when you look at it. Yes. All right, everyone, pull up your blow-up chair. Shut down your flip phone. We're going to chat about the world ending. Y2K is the shorthand term for the year 2000, commonly used to refer to a widespread computer programming shortcut that was expected to cause extensive havoc as the year changed from 1999 to 2000. Instead of allowing four digits for the year, many computer programs only allowed two digits, for example, 99 instead of 1999. As a result, there was immense panic that computers would be unable to operate when the date descended from 99 to 00. That was a quote from Clay Halton at Investopedia. I want you guys to know that Tracy is nodding along, (laughs) giving me so much encouragement on the video call.
0: Yeah, you're right. It was a memory issue. Computers couldn't There just wasn't space for them to store all four digits. It just wasn't doable. So it was only stored as two digits, 99. And then there was a panic that they didn't program for the fact that it could reset like an odometer back to zero zero.
1: Right. And that exact thing was called the millennium bug. And it was causing banks, airlines, the government, everyone to freak out believing their computers would crash in a massive moment of New Year's techno-death. How would people access their money? What if our government couldn't defend itself? What about communications? Transportation? What if you're on a plane and it falls out of the sky? What if you're plunged back into the dark ages of technology? Even toasters? And drum sets were on the list of items people feared weren't, quote, Y2K compliant. When I say drum sets, I mean just drums, just a drum kit. I read a personal anecdote from the 99-2000 era. Someone was concerned their drum kit wouldn't work.
0: What's funny is that we live in such a world of the Internet of Things, of everything being a smart device, that... It sounds less crazy now. Oh, yeah. So much less crazy. Like, your toaster could have an app. It'd, it'd be probably pretty pointless, but it could.
1: You could pick the shade, ooh, or you could pick what image gets toasted onto your toast. I'm pretty sure that exists. We could definitely have willing and fable branded toast. <laughs> God, could you imagine? Oh, everything. <laughs> everything branded. Everything branded. Funnily, many people feared that the computer meltdown would come even before January 1st. Instead, September 9th, 1999, or 9999, would trigger a failure because some early programmers used groups of nines to signal the end of a program. But that date passed, and the world continued on. In the time leading up to Y2K, The research firm known as Gartner anticipated a worldwide cost between 300 and 600 billion. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the US alone actually spent 300 billion, but the Times has that estimate closer to 100 billion. But let's get a more modern perspective on those numbers, because remember, this problem like many is really all about money. To start, 600 billion in 1999 would be about 940 billion dollars today according to the congressional budget office the 2019 budget for defense in the united states was 676 billion during the 2008 financial crisis the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act signed into law a program that used 700 billion to buy devalued assets from banks. That would be about 856 billion today. According to a Business Insider report as of August 3, 2020, the world's billionaires have increased their wealth by an estimated billion during the COVID-19 pandemic alone. A quote. A study in 2012 found that as much as $32 trillion was being held offshore by the world's wealthiest people. We're talking about 10% of the world's GDP, according to a 2017 study. Boo. I'm giving you guys these examples to illustrate an important point. Learning about the fear of a looming January 1st, 2000, feels a little bit different sitting at home in 2020. As of May 8th, 2020, USA Today reported coronavirus stimulus plans are expected to more than triple the current US deficit budget to 3.5 trillion. My point being, the world hasn't ended yet, but if we just look at the numbers, the cost of keeping it going is rising. As for Y2K, the same Investopedia article I mentioned earlier described people's fears of Y2K as a, quote, epidemic-like panic. (laughs) Boo. Boo. In 1998, President Bill Clinton signed the Year 2000 Information and Readiness Disclosure Act to encourage companies to share information by offering limited liability protection in exchange. In that same year, the U.N. held its first international conference on the issue, and the International Y2K Cooperation Center was set up in Washington, D.C. Everyone from Uganda to Bulgaria had a plan though for some countries like Korea and Italy, that plan was minimal. Y2K was widely published as the end of days by fringe groups, survivalists, fundamentalist Christians, and conspiracy theorists. Books were published, including Mike Ohler's The Hippie Survival Guide to Y2K. To quote a New York Times article from late 1999, The Reverend Jerry Falwell suggested that Y2K would be the confirmation of Christian prophecy, God's instrument to shake this nation, to humble this nation. The Y2K crisis might incite a worldwide revival that would lead to the rapture of the church. Along with many survivalists, Mr. Falwell advised stocking up on food and guns. End quote. It's important to understand that convincing people that planes were going to drop out of the sky and they should head for the hills made some entrepreneurs quite a lot of money. Thousands of books on Y2K were sold, survival kits were marketed, and some cult-like religions saw record numbers of repentance.
0: Nothing like that would ever happen today. Wow, what a different time from the time we're living in. Just almost unimaginable how different that time seems to be from this time right now.
1: I know. I I just can't even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, these efforts and this money seem hilarious to Tracy today because they are so similar. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Programmers around the world did serious decades-long work to make sure computers were Y2K compliant. It seems humorous in retrospect because the public caught on late to the game, stockpiling food, water, guns, and resources because Y2K became a big news story. But long before that, the computer world had to get involved. Paul Sappho, a professor at Stanford University, said the Y2K crisis didn't happen precisely because people started preparing for it over a decade in advance. And the general public, who was busy stockpiling up on supplies and stuff, just didn't have a sense that the programmers were on the job. Nowadays, people on both sides of the spectrum use the outcome of Y2K to prove their point. Australia spent millions of dollars to prepare for the millennium. Russia spent not one cent. Australia brought almost all of its embassy staff home from Russia just to be sure they were safe when the grid failed. When the moment finally came, Australia was absolutely fine, and all their preparation worked. So did Russia's. (laughs) But my story is not about any of that. I spoke to as many people who were adult humans during Y2K. (laughs) And here we go. This was our absolute last moment to party like it was 1999. That's the annoying line everyone kept using leading up to New Year's. If I heard it one more time, I was probably going to scream, but my roommate and I had also played the song on repeat every day before we left for Christmas break, so I really couldn't complain. I was 18. A young 18. Which meant I was the weird combination of wanting to stay away at school and being super excited to get home, to see my dog, my parents, my useless brother. Most of the holiday break was boring and uneventful. In a cozy, homey sort of way. My mom and I made sugar cookies for the whole neighborhood, and I got this cute pink Sony Discman for Christmas. I had the Now Too album, which meant that no one could talk to me because I always had my headphones on. But there was this New Year's Eve Y2K party everyone from my group in high school was going to, and I was so excited. I felt like I'd sort of sorted out my look since high school graduation, and I wanted to show off my new college freshman self. Looking back... I just looked like a center part hair, bad, Abercrombie knockoff, but that's probably the reason that I try not to look back. When I got ready for the party, I slathered on this strawberry-flavored lip gloss. I don't know how, but something had gotten into my head that kissing me would be better if I was all sticky and glossy and tasted like some demented candy. And to be clear... I definitely had a plan to be kissed. I was also wearing my signature scent, Plumeria, from Bath and Body Works. I say signature scent because freshman year of high school, my friends and I each agreed that we would claim a scent and no one else could wear it. I think that's what comes from patrolling the mall for hours on end and wanting tools to get specific attention from specific people. Christine wore Pearberry, which quickly became a nickname for her. Eleanor took Cucumber Melon because she thought it was sophisticated. I kept wearing Plumeria for a few more years until a college boyfriend made a joke about it, and I was so embarrassed that I ran to the Macy's counter the next day and made a salesman tell me what smells men liked. That night, It was so cold walking to Nick's house with Chrissy that I actually thought our noses would fall off, but we both insisted on only wearing these cute little jackets that were in no way proper winter coats. There was snow on the ground, for Christ's sakes. Did we not want boys to think that we as human beings got cold? I don't know. It was a choice, I guess. Anyway, It was three doors down in Chrissy's cul-de-sac, so who really cared? I had my eye on Nick. He was hosting the party. He was cute, tall, his hair had these frosted tips. Honestly, I cannot remember much about him except that he looked like a backstreet boy. His house was nice. They weren't insanely wealthy or anything, just that Midwestern suburban kind of rich. His parents were also very happy to host all the parties in the neighborhood, which worked out just fine. When we got there, I remember I wanted to make a big show of seeming older and worldly. I was going to a school out of state, so I shook his dad's hand for the first time ever and asked how his job was going. He was a nice man really funny, and and not one of those dads who try to embarrass their kids, so I think he just humored me. It was a good time for the most part. It was cool to see everyone, and I was surprised to find that they were all pretty much the same. One artsy dude transferred into his school's business program, and there was a rumor that one girl dropped out because she was pregnant, but really that was the last winter break that we hung on to our hometown friends. It was very nostalgic and absolutely soaked in Smirnoff ice. If I even smell one nowadays, I retch. I don't know what it was about that time that everyone thought the only flavors should be like pixie sticks on acid. But you should thank your lucky stars for hipster beer. All night, I was angling to kiss Nick when the ball dropped. He was pretty much ignoring me, choosing instead to hang out in the hot tub where people were challenging each other to run out into the snow. Some of the girls were in these cute little bikinis, and I'm not that brave, so I don't really blame him. Everyone was going so hard at this party. Nick's older brothers had their college friends, so as freshmen we had something to prove. And even though it was this weird, abstract, anarchist idea that caused our parents to buy extra cans of food at the grocery store, we all half believed that the world might end. People argued about the validity of the Y2K bug, but everyone secretly hoped it was real. The countdown started when I was sitting in the living room, half paying attention to some loud card game that was going on on the floor. I was sulking, because the world was completely unfair. There was no way Nick was going to kiss me. He had some girl I'd never met before sitting on his lap, and someone had spilled a beer on my jeans a few hours ago. I don't want to sound dramatic, because it wasn't like that, but... Even though I intellectually knew it was no big deal, I was so sure that I was going to get that New Year's kiss when I started the evening out that now I a little bit wish the world would end catastrophically. Or at least uh, I wouldn't be able to think about Nick anymore because Jesus Christ himself would come down and stop our refrigerators from working. Everyone was throwing confetti and blowing noisemakers before the countdown even started. Nick's mom brought out all the pots and pans for everyone to bang on, and it was this pretty excellent, drunken, end-of-the-world revelry. Elle came up to me then. She didn't smell like cucumber melon anymore. I had seen her around the party, and was eager to hear about school, but hadn't tried to talk to her because she was always surrounded by the older crowd. She looked great. Somehow summery in the middle of winter. She wasn't wearing a single logo on her clothes, which was weirdly powerful. And she was always tall, but she just seemed taller. Everything about her was just a little bit more. Her hair was darker. Her eyes were brighter. She seemed more excited than I'd ever seen her in my life. When she said something I couldn't hear, we both laughed. So she leaned in close on the couch and whispered in my ear, Hey, did you hear the world is about to end? I laughed again, feeling weirdly shy, and held up my drink to her in a cheers and sort of semi-shouted, I did! (laughs) At least if it does, we went out with a bang! She smiled at me. I think she said, You're just the same! But everyone had started counting down, and I wasn't sure. Ten, nine, eight, seven... Some of the partiers were squealing in anticipation. Elle pulled me close to her again so she could whisper, and the curtain of our hair together made the world a little bit quieter. Six, five, four... I just want to do this before the world ends, okay? Three, two... What? Uh, Elle, I can't hear you. And then, really soft and slow, she kissed me. I was really startled for a moment because I realized I should probably meet her halfway on the kissing front. Even though I'd never really considered it before, I did want to kiss her. She was soft everywhere, but really solid. She definitely existed and she was enthusiastic about me. Instead of just her own narrative of passion, I felt like she was listening to me. I never wore flavored lip gloss after that day, though. There was this weird, filmy stickiness between us, and I was suddenly enraged because it didn't match her earthy, sunshiny warmness at all. I was just starting to relax. And then everyone screamed. Loudly. And then a weird, hushed silence fell. Of course, I instantly thought this was because we'd kissed— It was pre-legalized gay marriage, remember, and we lived in a super traditional town. But the lights in the whole house were out. Which, I gotta say, was an instant relief before I really considered it. I was so glad no one was paying attention to us. And also, Elle had her hand on my knee where she'd been leaning forward, and I was thinking about how nice that felt. Elle gasped. Oh my god. As a chorus of voices started panicking, it wasn't just a few lights out. It was the entire house in darkness right at the moment of midnight, January 1st, 2020. Just as the worry was starting to become real, all the lights came back on And Nick's dad came up from the basement crying with laughter. Seriously, he was falling all over himself. He was laughing so hard. It was a good prank, so it became legendary. The rest of that night, some people fessed up that they were completely fooled, but just as many talked about how they saw lights on in the other houses, or they knew if it was fine on the East Coast, then it was probably a hoax. When I think about that night, I think about how brave Elle was. She faced off with the world's end and honestly, truly came out the other side of a new millennium. It never felt that way to me. We never saw one another after that holiday break, and I just kept on with what I thought I was supposed to be doing all the way up to... Today, I guess. Y2K was just one more night in a lifetime of nights. Only this time there was confetti to celebrate the world's unending. I love that story. So, two things. Thing number one, I decided our podcast was too straight and I was tired of lusty boys just going after hot ladies. Yes, love it. Thing number two... This is based off of a real story. I asked Tyler what his Y2K experience was like, and apparently a friend of his in Minnesota had been to a party where the father turned out the lights to fool everybody. That,
0: it's funny. It's a good prank. I had to stifle myself with the, we all walked around the mall and then picked out our signature scents. I feel like that's such a universal girl thing to do.
1: Oh, yeah, we
0: definitely did that. You wouldn't tell anyone what yours was, though.
1: Really? Mm Mm-hmm. That's so... (sighs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll tell you now. Um, Oh, you told me in college. (laughs) uh, Oh, right. Well, I'll tell everyone else now because I was so cool. It was Japanese cherry blossom. Oh, I thought it was Britney Spears. Oh, oh, okay. okay. Okay, okay, okay. It goes thusly. Whenever anyone shopped at Bath & Body Works, because I felt like everyone's mom was always gifting mm-hmm. like, Bath & Body Works stuff. Because Bath & Body Works just has stood the test of time. 100%. So I wore Japanese cherry blossom. And that's probably because it went well with Britney Spears' perfume. And I never wanted to tell anyone because I didn't, I didn't want people to think that I wasn't cool um that's the theme of today's episode
0: is who are we doing this for why are we
1: (laughs) pretending for no one right why won't i tell you why i smell like a vanilla sugar cookie exactly (laughs) what was your signature scent i liked warm
0: vanilla sugar i think that was the one i wore the most that or moonlit path Moonlit Path
1: is the one I thought you were going to say. I would have bet 20 bucks Moonlit Path, also 50% because of the name. Yes.
0: (laughs) I was always about aesthetic. I am always about aesthetic. I'm all for a mood. I want a vibe.
1: (laughs) All right. So back to the aesthetic. I'm putting history on the top and history on the bottom. And then I just put like the sweet little young person gay romance that should have existed. I don't know. I just basically at four in the morning I was like, our podcast is too straight. <laughs> it's it's a gay romance sandwich with history bread. And I love that. I love that for us. So here's some more history bread, gluten free. <laughs> There are some actual glitches that happened due to the millennium bug. Uh, these are examples that are quoted directly from an Associated Press article published on February 27, 2000, which was super cool to read. So, websites for Vice President Al Gore's campaign and the U.S. Naval Observatory, the nation's timekeeper, showed the year as 19100. At the Oak Ridge Nuclear Weapons Plant in Tennessee, Y2K disrupted a computer that tracks weight and type of nuclear material. Plant operations were unaffected. Data banks in Venice and Naples, Italy, listed prisoners due to be released January 10th as having completed their terms January 10th, 1900. Eight computerized traffic lights failed in Jamaica, up to 30,000 older cash registers in Greece, printed receipts showing the year as 1900, and my personal favorite, a video store in upstate New York tried to charge a customer $91,250 after computers showed a rented movie was being returned 100 years late.
0: those are some late fees. (laughs) Can you imagine getting a call that like your grandparent or your great grandparent didn't return a video and now you owe $90,000?
1: See, it's funny because you could not have had a video in the 1900s. So it's easy to just go shut your mouth. But now in 2020, it would be awesome to find out that your grandparents still had a blockbuster movie did you ever rent vhs's
0: oh oh my god all the time there was this little deli near the house i grew up in um and we would walk there from my house and all the movies had little poker chips on them that were stuck with velcro to the front and you would pull off the velcro or pull off the poker chip go to the counter and that's how they would give you your movie and then you could buy all your snacks while you were there and then we'd as, like, a little kid would, like, walk back home through the woods to my house and then watch my movie.
1: That's really clever. Mm -hmm. I've actually been to a couple VHS stores in recent years. Or I should say movie rental, because they had VHSs, but they also had DVDs or Blu-ray or whatever technology we're on. (laughs) So I didn't mention this above, but I wanted to add that the year two thousand was a leap year, which was an extra added bit of panic for many worriers, and it kept the problem going long after January. On March 1st that year, after many thought computers might fail again, there were actually a few problems reported around the world, including 5% of post office cash dispensers in Japan not working. But for the most part, it went off without a hitch. But... The Y2K problem isn't even over. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. In fact, 2020, aside from being a dumpster fire in the real world, also happens to be the year that people's cheap Y2K fixes run out. Pre-2000, the millennium fixes for computer code were either to completely rewrite it, or to use a quick fix called windowing. This would treat all dates from 00 to 20 as if they were from the 2000s instead of the 1900s. According to new scientists, an estimated 80% of computers fixed in 1999 used the quicker, cheaper option. And it wasn't because they loved watching people doomsday prep or wanted to see a huge number of New York City parking meters say nope when asked to process credit cards. That, by the way, definitely happened this year due to that code windowing. This problem was kicked down the road because fixing bugs in old code is a huge pain that costs a ton of money, and most people assume their system will be gone long before it becomes a problem. The same thinking that caused programmers in the 70s, to set us up for Y2K, set us up for the same bug in 2020. It's called technical debt. It's a huge problem.
0: Technical debt? Yep. Yep, the term is technical debt. For when you recognize that you have old code that needs to be fixed, but you're constantly putting out new code, building new systems, and so then that backlog of work that needs to be fixed, like bugs like this, just falls into your technical debt.
1: Just the idea of that makes my heart race.
0: <laughs> I deal with it every day, so it's just standard for me. It's cool though, because tech like tech debt is such a everyday term to me. It's cool to realize. I don't know. It's just interesting to realize it's not an everyday term for everyone else. Like just stepping out of my little my little IT nerd bubble.
1: I didn't even know to Google it. So, <laughs> Tracy, I don't want to give you anxiety, but you might already know this, so we will see this problem again. <laughs> Unix, a popular operating system that uses something called epoch time and a 32-bit integer to store data, will run out of capacity at 3.14 a.m. on January 19th, 2038. So you heard it here, folks. That date is definitely the end of the world For real this time. (laughs) January 19th, 2038. That's the one.
0: No one is moving off of Unix systems. No one is updating (laughs) their mainframes. We are stuck on it, kids. Countdown begins.
1: (laughs) This is the definitive. Mm Mm-hmm. So, guys, while you're sitting there in abject terror with 2038 looming over your 2020 existence, I want to close with one final quote that was also submitted by a reader to the Scientific American on January 17th, 2000. Quote, In hindsight, Y2K can be wrapped up in just a few thoughts. One, The short-sightedness of the software industry. Applications written in 1998, not compliant. Come on. Two, the ability of the media to over-dramatize and hype any event. Three, the general populace always expecting the end of the world or a similar crisis. Four, the ability of the human race to somehow come through in spite of it all. Jason Harmon, Louisville, Texas. Nice quote, Jason. Well said. I know. I like that it's a little sassy at the top, a little uplifting at the bottom. (laughs) I would say that it has um, uh, sass bread on the top, support bread on the bottom, Mm -hmm. with a little bit of, like, uh, just shade in the middle.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, that's a sandwich I would munch on. It always drives me nuts when there's, like, two people standing. Let's say, like, two people in blue shirts standing, and then, like, in between them is someone in a red shirt. And they're like, it's a blue shirt sandwich. You don't name the sandwich after the bread. Sorry. It's just, like, a a hill, I guess, I'm choosing to die on. Interesting. I'm
1: going to counter that with hoagie. What kind of hoagie? Hoagie, Mm -hmm. though, is named for the bread or a sub or grinder. But you identify the sandwich by the ingredients. Shoot. Okay, okay. The second I I thought of flatbread and wrap, I knew I was out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, this is what you're just, just listing bread.
1: <laughs> Welcome to our bread podcast. It's a podcast where we talk to you about bread. Oh, you really had an opportunity to go. Welcome to hold on, wait.
0: Welcome to sure. Gluten and Fable.
1: Yeah, no, wait. Welcome... Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Wheat and Farroh, a podcast where we talk about ancient grains, local (laughs) recipes, (laughs) and why bread (laughs) has staying power.
0: Oh no. (laughs) Oh yes, 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 yes. As someone who lives in a house where homemade bread... (laughs) Has been made three different <laughs> times this week. I'm here for that podcast.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So, speaking of things you're here for, how did I do mm-hmm. with the tech apocalypse?
0: You did a great job. You did a really great job. You, There was absolutely no more in-depth than you needed to go. It would have been so boring if you went into literally any more detail. So. Oh,
1: yeah. I learned that right quick. Do you guys have any idea how many versions of a story that I wrote before I got to the one I landed on with my cute, sweet, baby, strawberry lip gloss, Bloomeria?
0: <laughs> when in
1: doubt, strawberry lip gloss, lady love. God, I'd rather be dead than wear strawberry lip gloss.
0: Yeah, no. I don't I don't wear st- I don't wear lip gloss very often anymore except for pictures because it looks great in photos.
1: I'm not anti-lip gloss, but I honestly unless whatever thing is going on my face is scented vanilla or rose, and by rose I don't mean powdery Fake rose, Mm -hmm. I mean legitimate roses dyed for my pleasure rose smell. Yep, yep. I'm very particular about my rose scent. And lavender and strawberry lip gloss can just back right off. (laughs) All right, all right, all right, all right. Tracy, talk to me about your version of the end of the world. So my version of
0: the end of the world takes us forward a little bit. From yours, I'm going to talk about the 2012 end-of-the-world phenomenon.
1: Oh, no.
0: (laughs) Oh, yes. Okay. So, let's start with conspiracy theories. Those funny little things that people talk about on websites, blog posts, subreddits, YouTube videos, books, podcasts, and pretty much any other form of media you can imagine. From my small sample size of friends and family, I have decided definitively that you either love reading about conspiracy theories or you find the entire concept ridiculous and frustrating and you don't want anything to do with it.
1: Aren't you on the ridiculous and frustrating team?
0: Yes! (laughs) I knew you'd call me out. Not so much anymore. Maybe I'm contradicting myself by becoming more in the middle, but...
1: I would say if conspiracy theories are the Kinsey scale, I'm in the middle leaning towards interested in conspiracy theories. I just find it, I just do find them frustrating.
0: I I, I think they're interesting. Mm, I'm more interested in something that is guaranteed like fiction. Like the same conspiracy theory presented to me as fiction, I'm more interested in than it presented to me as this weird truth but it doesn't have actual proof and it's based on you only half believing in certain information and you can prove it false but not prove it like it 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 just Mm,
1: no no my way into conspiracy theories is who is the person telling the conspiracy that they believe in and why do they believe in it because (sighs) yeah, <sighs> okay, because if it's a super unprovable ridiculous conspiracy theory or even a medium ridiculous, I don't know, it says a lot about the person that's like, you have to hear this conspiracy theory that's 100% true, you can immediately get a pretty good picture of mm-hmm. who you are chatting with.
0: Right. And a lot of the research is kind of those voices. And I think what, I think what it boils down to is when someone makes any, about anything in life, when someone makes this big sweeping statement, like all people are this, or things are always this way, or this is the only way to, you know, big sweeping statements like that, I don't care if I agree with you, the contrarian in me has to argue the other side. And I think I just get ruffled feathers when conspiracy theories get presented as like, these are true, this is all facts. And I'm like, well, what about this? And then i it's not great for me.
1: Listen to the Willing and Fable podcast. You are going to, without a doubt, 100% love the podcast.
0: That's not a sweeping statement about, <laughs> like, that's just, you'll love the podcast. You should listen to it.
1: Mm-hmm. I say that all the time. Okay. Okay. So you want a fact instead of an opinion. Yeah. If
0: you if you look me down in the eye and you're like, all women love this, I'm like, that's not true though or i don't know i i get very contrarian when i feel like people aren't representing all sides of an argument
1: i don't know why i'm i'm 100 on your side about this i a thousand percent agree with you i a million percent want to say something (laughs) contrary yes you're the
0: same as me so anyway that's where i think that i get a little bit like ruffled feathers with some conspiracy theory stuff
1: so what you're saying is you should have done the computer end of the world and I should have done the conspiracy end of the world and we just said nope to that yeah we flipped it we we said nope. but I enjoyed it I actually really I I really enjoyed researching this although
0: at times I did lay with my head in a pillow feeling like my brain was melting
1: this is factual because she texted me during those times <laughs> I sure did Rowan always gets the brunt of my m- meltdowns. <laughs> really? You're real light on the meltdown. Of all the people whose meltdowns I get texted about, you're you're just a seasoning.
0: Actually, you should have seen me meltdown when I... Oh, my God. You should have seen me meltdown today when I failed to hang the curtain rods. I stormed up to Tim and said, We are not allowed to have curtains in this house. They are banned from this household. And then I stormed down to the basement where Jamie was actively working... <laughs> laid face down on the carpet, and just yelled.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, the answer to that might be, just, just a suggestion, I don't know, what Tyler and I call family scream time. <laughs> and it does not come from either of our families. I don't know how it got this name. We usually do it in a car because we live in the city in apartments and don't want the cops called, but we call family scream time. And then we scream as loud as we can for as long as we can. And then we take a breath. And if we need to do it again, we do it again.
0: Yeah, I could use that. But. Bring it. Okay. Now that I've researched these conspiracy theories, I actually had a really fun time doing it. Um, it, it it's cool to have looked into these things. So I'm going to talk to you about a few theories that led people to panic about the end of the world in 2012. For decades, people have been convinced that there's a mysterious planet X that's going to come out of the edge of our solar system, crash into Earth, and kill us all. Amateur astronomers have pointed it out in the night sky, identified irregular fluctuations in Venus, and have determined that there is a mystery planet coming. Fast forward from... Y2K to 2012, and everyone is convinced the world is going to end in December because the Mayan calendar ended on December 21st, 2012. So today, Rowan, I am going to tell you a story in which I combine these two world-ending conspiracy theories into one with an added alien conspiracy theory
1: for a little spice. I'm so excited.
0: (laughs) (laughs) After this, I will break down the theories and we can decide whether or not we think they're true. Okay. All right. August 27th, 2012. I'm recording this for posterity's sake so that when all of this is over, everyone will know what really happened. Although, I suppose there's a good chance no one will be able to actually listen to this. I'm not really sure what technology's gonna look like after this all goes down, but I have to do something. So, I've written down all of my notes physically, I've also typed them into a file, saved that file online, and on a USB, and a floppy disk, because, lord knows, Nokia phones and Windows 95 computers will be the only thing left alongside cockroaches at the end of the world. And now, I'm recording this audio. If you're listening to this after December 21st, 2012, then congratulations, you survived. But in case you're listening to this before then, let me tell you what to expect. Let me tell you how the world is gonna end. Uh, Wait, sorry. Before I get into it, I should give you some of my credentials. I have a PhD in mathematics, I have no history of mental illness in myself or my family, and I am a hacker. Not the black trench coat wearing, I've hacked the mainframe nineteen ninety style hacker, but a real hacker. The kind that knows that with a great virus and decent social engineering, you can get any information you want. I thought hacking into government documents would be a cool milestone to accomplish. I figured I'd get bragging rights and maybe learn something interesting that I could share or (laughs) leak to the world. I never expected to find actual evidence that we are all living in a countdown that no one is willing to tell us about. This is messed up. It's messed up. (laughs) This is beyond messed up. Like, we're all going to die in four months and no one is talking about it. Okay, well, no one credible, that is. The government is doing a really good job at making all of us who know the truth seem like tinfoil hat wearing nutcases. But I promise I'm as sane as the next person. There is something coming, something big. Literally, a planet is about to destroy everything we know and love. I know how that sounds. But you need to stay with me here i have actual proof documents that i stole from the government the fbi the cia the nsa the white house nasa they are all hiding this shit because if everyone out there knew what i know we'd all be losing our damned minds here's the deal the short version is that there is a planet at the outer edge of our solar system currently hidden by the sun it's on a direct crash course towards Earth. In fact, the day that it's supposed to hit us lines up perfectly with the prediction from the ancient Mayan calendar. I know, it sounds like conspiracy theory nonsense. How fitting. The day that the mysterious Planet X is going to crash into Earth just happens to line up with the same day the Mayans predicted the end of the world. But that's the thing. The government wants you to believe that it's too perfect a coincidence so that when I tell you the truth, your reaction will be to roll your eyes and call me crazy. But the truth is that all the way back, I'm talking ancient Sumerian levels of all the way back, people predicted that there was a mysterious planet out there, a planet called Nibiru. This planet exists on the outer edge of our solar system and humans have been tracking it for centuries. Nibiru is on a trajectory that will lead it straight to Earth. And I've shared my documents with a few trusted folks that I know from my work on the dark web. And I know what you're thinking, how can I trust people who hack for a living, right? But these are good people and they know how to tell truth from fiction. So we've all been calling this the Nibiru Cataclysm. So let's start with the document. This is one of the documents that I discovered from the government. FR 2629 Project Zeta reported by XO 224 on April 8th, 2009. The subject ZAT23 was returned from interrogation at 0800 hours. The finalized interrogation report will be submitted to Dr. Redacted by Officer Jacobson. However, initial findings, as written by Dr. Rudyard, are as follows. Side note, these notes are handwritten and photocopied onto the document, and this guy's handwriting is terrible. You can't see it, but it took me like an hour to decipher this. Anyway, back to the document. The subject admitted to implanting an AXNCOM device into the brain of one Nancy Leiter when she was a child. This confirms our suspicions of her case being a legitimate one of contact with Zayton's. The subject is admitted to implantation in at least two other suspects as well, Luke and Tessa Giamatti. We've been keeping a close eye on them, but they seem to be mostly unaware of the implants and instead believe it to be a case of family-inherited schizophrenia. Follow-up will need to occur as, unlike Miss Leiter, they have stayed quiet about their experiences. Based on Nancy Leiter's proclamations and the information gathered today from ZAT23, She has not been given the full picture of their plans regarding Nibiru and the treaty. My recommendation is to continue to observe her from afar. Let her continue shouting to the world. But if at any point it should become necessary, we cannot hesitate to eliminate her. Interrogation notes. Oh, um, this part was clearly typed into a form that seems to be used regularly. Date. April 8th, 2009. Time, 0623, blood 81.4, oxy, 244 over 150, pupil dilation 0.44. Subject response. Um, Here it shows a chart, and it looks like it's a heart rate, but while I'm a doctor, I'm not that kind of doctor, so I don't know what it means. I showed it to a friend of mine who is an actual doctor, but she said these numbers make no sense for any living creature she's ever seen. So I think it's a Zaytan, one of those aliens, and it makes me really curious about their anatomy. Okay, back to the last part of the document. Subject responded well to 12 milligrams Zolodenthal before interrogation. Um, By the way, this is a drug that no one seems to be able to identify in any legitimate or illegitimate market. Okay, back to the last part of the document. All factors indicate that the subject spoke the truth, and the final recommendation is to move forward with the treaty. End report. Okay, so this proves a few things. One, there's a woman named Nancy Leider who is telling the truth insofar as she knows it, but that the Zetans, who are an alien race, have a bigger plan regarding Nibiru. And even Nancy Leiter doesn't know about it. The Zetans have visited Earth and implanted other humans with communication devices. There's a planet called Nibiru, and it's the same thing as Planet X, which Nancy Leiter seem to speak about, and it's all coming towards Earth. Lastly, there's some treaty being discussed. According to my research, Nancy Leiter is a Wisconsin woman who created a website called Zeta Talk in 1997. She claims she was visited by Zetans when she was a child and these aliens implanted a communication device in her brain and warned her about a mysterious Planet X, which now we know is Nibiru, and now we know the Zetans have a plan with Nibiru and some sort of treaty. Okay, that was a lot, but stay with me. Basically, Zetans are aliens who visited Earth and warned us via a Wisconsin woman about a planet that's going to crash into ours in December of this year. I told you, I know it sounds crazy, but this next document explains it further. It's a letter confiscated from an officer working with the Zaytan project. I believe it's the same officer Jacobson referred to in the interrogation report. Linda. They were here before. They've been trying to tell us for thousands of years and we weren't listening. I've snuck this letter out and if it gets to you somehow, please tell the kids I love them. I don't know where to start, but before I do, know that I love you, and I am sorry for my part in this. The ancient Mayans were visited by aliens known as the Zatans. All that ancient alien BS, Linda, it's real. Okay, well, not all of it. Some of it's still ridiculous. But the story about aliens helping the Mayans build a calendar, that's real. There's also a planet coming and it's going to crash into Earth. And the ancient Mayans were told by the Zaytans that this would occur. This calendar, the one that everyone is freaking out about because it ends in December of 2012, it stops on that day for a reason. They've been warning us for thousands of years and we never listened. Planet Nibiru is going to crash into Earth and kill us all. They got this information. We got this information because we interrogated one of them. But it took almost nothing to get the thing to start talking. It's like they wanted us to know. Like they wanted us to be scared. I think they want something out of this. They were so eager to bring up the idea of negotiation. There was... A hunger in its eyes when it said that they could help us if we were willing to offer them something in return. General Simmons seems to be in talks with them now, but I don't know any details. I know they're working on a treaty, but I don't know how it's going. If it succeeds, we'll be safe. We will keep on living, but I'm worried about what we will need to give up in order to survive. I fear it will be something terrible, Linda. I don't know what we humans have to offer, but all I know is if they can help us, it's going to be our only way to survive this. Doesn't give us much of a bargaining chip to be so desperate, but what else do we have? I would give up anything to see you and the kids one last time, so maybe I'm already just too desperate to care. I just... Hope we don't live to regret the cost. Love, John. Normally, I would write this off as interesting, but probably written by someone who cracked under pressure and can't be trusted. I saw another document that Officer John Jacobson was transferred to a redacted assignment due to mental health concerns after he'd been caught attempting to leak sensitive information. So based on the fact that he was trying to leak real information and this letter is what got him kicked out of his assignment i have to believe this is real so this means that on december 21st 2012 planet nibiru will crash into earth and kill us all unless an alien race known as the Zatans can help us stop it this is the worst sci-fi movie to be living inside of ever ah. All right, my my battery's running low. I'm going to charge this up and record part two in order to tell you what other conspiracy theories I found out to be true. So what you're listening to now is the end of part one, but I have much, much more to share with you. And if for some reason you're listening to this after December 2012, then I guess we made the deal after all. So tell me, do you think it was worth it? Or... Did we engage in a Faustian bargain with something we couldn't even begin to understand? Signing off for now.
1: I love that from one week to the next, you and I were just so Team Magnus our <laughs> I know.
0: Literally, I was inspired by the Magnus Archives as well as something that I can't believe I didn't learn about until um, this past week. It's called SCPs, Secure, Contain, Protect. It's this collection of stories that are basically kind of pastas set in the same universe all about unexplained alien Phenomena, and there's diff- it's it's a whole canon where there's different levels of SCPs. Some are friendly, some are not friendly. Some can only be contained. Some are eliminated. It's really fascinating. And so, between Magnus Archives and reading the SCP uh, dossiers, I was super inspired for for this week's story.
1: And this is something you read, not something you listen to.
0: Right, it's something you read. You can, you can find YouTube videos that talk about them. Editing Tracy. There's also an SCP podcast. It's called the SCP Archives. All right, back to it. There's like one SCP about this woman who has to be tortured because she can't be killed. And if she stops being tortured, she'll basically give birth to the Antichrist and end the world. There's another SCP that's just this friendly blob that loves you and inspires love in everyone else and like roams the facility as basically a dog that makes everyone happy. There's the unkillable lizard. Like there's just, it's so cool and so interesting. We will have to cover SCPs on our podcast at some point, but they inspired me along with the just incredible Magnus Archives.
1: So we'll have to get SCP stories up on our recommendations page so that you guys can check it out. Yep. That was lovely. That. That official government document, Tracy, that moment you had redacted, ah, beautiful. (laughs) I I
0: was torn between putting redacted in there because I, at one point, was like, well, what if this person found, like, official documents? And I had a whole thing in there at first about, like, them finding only, uh, you know, being able to access the account of someone who didn't have full credentials. And then I was like, you know what, whatever. It's an official document. It can just say redacted. And so I... I had a little fun with it. What do we say? It's our podcast and we can do what we want? We can do whatever we want. <laughs> it was tough, though, because some of it was a lot. Some of it was pretty visual, again, because I was inspired by SCPs, which you read. So I wanted to try and make sure that it was, it, it, it could tr- be translated in an audio way.
1: As someone who enjoys the occasional jaunt through WikiLeaks, I, uh, I was super satisfied by your story. It was wonderful. Thank you. Okay, so tell me what the heck about that could have possibly been based on the real world right now.
0: So uh, Nancy Leiter, who I mentioned, is the only real person in that story. Uh, General Simmons, John Jacobson, the Giamatti siblings, they were all inspired from my brain. Um, But Nancy Leiter... Israel. She is a person who claims she awoke late in life to the realization that she had been contacted by aliens known as the Zetans when she was a child. So she created Zeta Talk in 1997 to spread awareness of all the things that she's learned. I, I do honestly recommend checking this website out. It's still active, but just if you do know that it is a lot Its design has not been updated since what looks to be the early 2000s. And the introductory articles were way too dense for me to understand. There was like 40 of them. Would you say it
1: has a MySpace vibe?
0: It wishes it had a MySpace vibe. It's like, go check it out. It's basically plain HTML with a lot of links. And everything is shifted over to the right with no formatting. The introductory articles are like, you have to already know everything that's going on just to understand the introductory articles. It was, it was a lot.
1: I have found in a lot of reading about alien theories that the websites, they must be required by someone to be old HTML style. It Right? There must be a rule somewhere on the internet that if you're going to talk about aliens, You do not get a Squarespace account. You get only MySpace.
0: Yeah, only sellouts use CSS to design their websites.
1: Oh, I wonder if we could have Squarespace make our website uh, HTML style for a little bit. I could do that. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Oh, right. Oh, right.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, So many of the articles on Zeta Talk seem to be from around uh, 2003 to 2010. It seems like that's when the site was most active, but it's still being updated today. So Nancy Leiter predicted that in 2003, Planet X would approach Earth, ceasing the rotation of Earth for 5.9 days, then causing a physical, instead of geomagnetic, shift in the Earth's rotation due to the proximity of Planet X. This would disrupt the Earth's core, cause widespread destruction across the crust, causing the end of the world. Obviously, that did not happen in 2003. So when the date passed without this occurring, she claimed that it was all a white lie to get the government's attention, but that she would not disclose the real date due to concerns that the government would seize too much power over people in the name of protecting them. I love it. And so if you go to Zeta Talk to this day, you'll see people say, we will not disclose the date to you.
1: So you, again, you have to be in a really cool club to get to know. Yeah, it seems like it. So that is the Nancy
0: Leiter, Planet X part of this story.
1: I'm just going to, from a word standpoint, the last name Leiter, not going to encourage people to believe you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so next, let's talk about the Mayan 2012 phenomena. Something that I, I'm sure we remember.
1: Yeah, everyone was going around shouting "12, 21, 12." Yup,
0: <laughs> yup. So this one, if you look into it for even one minute, is pretty easy to debunk. Um, but you know, I'll let you decide what you want to believe. I'll quote an article from NASA that explains this whole thing far more eloquently than I can. The Maya long-count calendar was designed to keep track of long intervals. It is the most complex calendar system ever developed by people anywhere. Written using modern typography, the long-count calendar resembles the odometer in a car. It's a modified base 20 system in which rotating digits represent powers of 20 days. Because the digits rotate, the calendar can roll over and repeat itself. This repetition is key to the 2012 phenomenon. According to Maya theology, the world was created 5,125 years ago. On a date, modern people would write as August 11th, 3114 BC. At the time, the Mayan calendar looked like 13.0.0.0.0. On December 21, 2012, it's exactly the same: 13.0.0.0.0. In the language of Maya scholars, 13 baktuns, or 13 times 144,000 days, elapsed between the two dates. This was a significant interval in Maya theology, but, stresses Carlson, not a destructive one. End quote. So, to sum up, just like when you turn your calendar over from December of one year to January of the next, so too does the Mayan calendar repeat itself. Would they have found this date to be significant or even worthy of celebration? Probably. But just like New Year's for us does not mean the end of the world, neither does the end of this cycle in the Mayan calendar. It does not mean disaster. It simply represents the transition from one cycle of time to another.
1: Excuse me for a minute there. The new year did mean the end of the world. Gosh. (laughs) I (laughs) knew
0: you were going to bring that up.
1: (laughs) One, I feel really attacked that you always know what I'm going to say. Two, I feel really loved that you always know (laughs) what I'm going to say. Yeah, that tracks. That that tracks. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I'd known that in 2012. I know. We could have <laughs> looked it up. Our, I, saw, I found articles that were like, hey guys, it's going to be fine. Well, I mean, I never thought it wasn't going to be fine. I just wish that I knew that. So when all the people that were shouting about it being over, mostly young men around us, mm-hmm. we could have just sat down and gone, hello, here's some history. Sprinkle, sprinkle. Yep. It would have been great Between some sass bread. <laughs>
0: some history between some sass bread. All right. So we've talked about Nancy Leiter. We've talked about her Planet X theory. We've talked about the Mayan calendar. Now it's time to talk about Nibiru. Okay. So we're going to talk about as much of the truth behind Nibiru as I could suss out. In 1979, Zechariah Stitchen wrote a book called The Twelfth Planet, in which he himself translates Sumerian cuneiform so that he can identify a planet known as Nibiru that he claims circles the Earth every 3,600 years. To quote an article from Space.com about Nibiru, A planet with an orbit so eccentric that it took 3,600 years to orbit the sun would create instabilities inside our 4.5 billion-year-old solar system. After only a few trips, its gravity would have significantly disrupted the other planets, whose own gravitational pushes would have changed the hypothetical world's orbit significantly. End quote. Not to mention that if such a planet were to get close enough to Earth for it to affect us physically or
1: geomagnetically, it would become very visible to the naked eye. I don't understand why something physical and close would be visible. What are you talking about, No, that's not how space works. I'm sorry. You're right. I did get the physics all wrong on that.
0: Forgive me. How dare you? (laughs) Okay, so, Rowan, one of my favorite parts of researching this was watching videos of NASA scientists debunking the Nibiru theory. Normally, NASA does not comment on theories like this, but it became so pervasive during 2012 that they replied to people via video and articles.
1: I, I love that. I, uh, can they come back for 2020, please? I think they're trying. They... I think they're trying. Okay, so
0: one scientist, David Morrison, said in a video, quote, there is no credible evidence whatever for the existence of Nibiru. It doesn't take an astronomer to see there's no Nibiru. Please get over it. Nibiru isn't real. End quote.
1: The <laughs> sass bread is freshly leavened. Mm-hmm. It is <gasps> oof toasty.
0: <laughs> okay, so last fun science fact. While planet Nibiru may not be on a trajectory for Earth, there may actually be a mysterious planet roaming around the outskirts of our solar system. According to NASA, quote, Caltech researchers have found mathematical evidence suggesting there may be a planet X deep in the solar system. This hypothetical Neptune-sized planet orbits our sun in a highly elongated orbit far beyond Pluto. End quote.
1: Rip, Pluto.
0: Rip, Pluto. But... Unlike Nibiru and Pluto, this mysterious planet won't be coming for us anytime soon. It would take nearly 10,000 to 20,000 years just for it to orbit the sun. And that's if it even exists outside of numbers on a NASA scientist's desk. As of now, the mysterious planet X is just an unconfirmed theory. Or is it? I'll leave it for you to decide.
1: As much as I just want to be a contrary, contrary human, I'm going to be team no way. Yeah. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Not no way to this other mysterious possible NASA theory. Because if NASA says it's a possibility, I will entertain that it is a possibility. Right. But uh, none none of this other malarkey. Nope. None of the other malarkey. So...
0: I super extra really loved your story. Thank you. I was really unsure. I wrote it God, I wrote it over the course of a bunch of days and like I was really like I had a I had a migraine at one point about writing it. I was like very sick and tired. I wrote it on, at first on four hours of sleep. And so I'm glad it came together into anything even remotely listenable. Because at
1: one point it was not. Don't even get me started on my own corner of the podcast. I have an important question, and I need you to look me dead in the eyes and be so, so serious. Okay, I'm so serious. I'm, like, scary serious. Go on. Can you hack? Okay, great question.
0: So hacking, uh, short version, is not what a lot of people think, where it's like, I've hacked the mainframe. It's more, honestly, about, like, 70% of it is, is what's called social engineering, which is when you, like get the number of an employee somewhere, you call them up and you're like, hi, this is Tracy from IG tech support. I just need to confirm that you've downloaded the latest patch. I see here that your employee number is 1111. And they're like, no, it's 1112. You're like, all right, I apologize. That's my mistake. 1112. Okay. I'm just going to share your computer real quickly. If you can just click approve on this thing and then they click approve and then they're on your computer and also they have your employee ID number.
1: All right. So my dreams for you being like Angelina Jolie and hackers are a little bit squashed. It's but... Little,
0: but every programmer you'll ever meet, myself included, changes the settings on their IDE, which is the thing they code in, to be a dark background with colorful text.
1: <laughs> Unexpected and awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's your color of text choice? So you don't usually get a choice. It's usually like a theme. Um uh, so mine's usually, and, and the color will change, so the most helpful ones will change the color of the word based on what it is in the code. So mine are usually, like, a dark gray background with, like, pink and yellow and blue and green.
1: I noticed when you sent me a screenshot from your phone that your phone you also had on a dark background. yeah. Which frustrated me so much because I, too, want my phone to be goth. But Google Calendar also becomes goth if you do that. And my Google Calendar needs to be a white background or my photographic memory will not work. Mm. Didn't know that about myself (laughs) until I suddenly couldn't access my brain image of my very important meticulous calendar. That's really funny.
0: So yeah, I'd be happy to do another episode to talk more about IT nerd stuff, but honestly the reality of almost anything computer-based is, like anything, less exciting than the fictional version.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to tell you.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, hacking aside, we have something really exciting for everyone. We have another listener story to share.
1: Say it right. It's listener legend. Do it again, Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) blah 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 listener legend (laughs) that was fabulous thank you well done (laughs) (laughs) so we brought you a present and by we brought you a present i mean listener ken l wrote in with a present for everyone so i'm going to read you his listener legend that he sent titled ghost experiences I don't tell these stories all that often anymore because most people just look at me like I am either crazy or that I'm making stuff up. However, I swear to you that every one of them is a true life experience that I personally have had. I have always been told, and often accused, that I am a very perceptive person. I see or feel things and notice details that most people do not. Movement or shapes being seen out of the corner of my eye, but nothing being there when I looked. A sudden and overpowering feeling when walking in or by a graveyard. A sharp chill down my spine when a name or place was spoken. As a kid raised in a very strict Pentecostal household, all of these things were considered evil and a sign of the devil. As I grew up into adulthood, I learned to tune it into something that people would understand. It is extremely rare for people to sneak up on me, scare me, and I do notice a lot of the small details most people would miss. I also learned to step softly to help keep my presence hidden. This is all to say that until I was in my late teens, early 20s, I didn't really understand what I was going through and how it all affected my life. When I was 17, I joined the Navy. This was partly because I needed to get away from my parents and partly because I wanted to be able to travel. I say those two words in quotes because at the time in my life, that was my rationalization. Looking back at it now, those words should replace each other within that sentence. After basic training and schooling, I was assigned my first duty station in Long Beach, California, on the USS Missouri. The Missouri has a long and honored history, as it was on her decks that the end of World War II was ended. But she also saw her fair share of combat. We were in port, and I was on duty below decks in the engine room on watch. Generally, while in port, and the engine's not in operation, there is only one person there. Our job is to take readings and make sure that equipment is working correctly. It was on one of these watches that my mind started to catch up with my senses. Sitting alone in this large space filled with machinery, I hear boots stepping on the metal grates coming toward me. I look up, and the sound stops, but no one is there. I look around, but see nothing. As I am looking at the metal grate in front of me, I hear one more step, and the grate that I am looking at rebounds back up to its normal position, as if a boot were lifted from it. At the time, after the initial shock of what happened, my brain processed it as being a reaction of the plates shifting as the ship rocked within the water. This explanation was then transferred to all other similar experiences while I was there. A year later, we were about to set sail off to Hawaii for the 50th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. A group of friends dragged me along with them to see a fortune teller. A tradition that this group of guys did before we went out for any length of time. After listening to this woman tell them all their fortunes, they talked me into sitting down for one of my own. Before I was even fully seated, she began to talk in a soft voice. Two steps in is dread. Three steps in is fear and panic. Four steps in and you will feel death at your side. That is all she said before chasing us all out the door. We all laughed and joked on our way back to the ship, and didn't think much of it during the two-week cruise to Hawaii. On one of our free days in Pearl, this same group of guys decided we should all take the ferry out to see the Arizona Memorial. Once there, we all stepped foot onto the landing area, and after two steps on the memorial itself, I stopped dead in my tracks as a feeling of dread washed over my entire body. My friends, not realizing what was happening, pushed me a step further as they walked further in. On that third step, it felt like I had stepped into an oven and fear became my existence. My muscles locked up, I started to shake, and my face became pale. The last of our party came up behind me, grabbed my shoulders, and pushed me forward once more. On that fourth step, I felt the death of over 1,100 sailors, all at once. Screams echoing in my head to get off the ship. I turned and fled, leaving my friends and taking the same ferry back to land. I never did go back to see that fortune teller. Oh,
0: so good. I I actually got chills.
1: Listening to that. Yeah, the second story really, really did me in. hmm I love a fortune teller. I, I
0: love a good fortune <laughs> teller. That was, oh, so good. Just that idea of feeling that. Like, it's so visceral. So I am
1: sorry that happened to you, but a uh, really great story. Well, Tracy, my secret present to you is I redacted the second half of this message into us because he wrote in another listener legend and i I wanted to save it (laughs) ken l thank you so much for writing in not one not two but three awesome stories the third of which i'm saving because if you got shivers during this one tracy you're gonna you're gonna get them for Thanks. this next one I I love being the person in charge of the email it's so good <laughs> <laughs> I love it I
0: am so excited we are heading into spooky season and if you guys want to vote on what you want to listen to during spooky season you can always join our Patreon people at $10 or more a month get voting rights for episodes and $5 or more a month gets you to join our Discord which is a super fun place that I personally love and I know I'm leading into my something good, so I will I will wait to be prompted.
1: Ah, yes, yes, yes. I will prompt you at my leisure. Tracy, <laughs> <laughs> tell me something
0: good. Uh, my something good this week is, uh, once again, our Discord. I know I just did that, but um, one of our listeners, I don't know if people are okay with us sharing names, so I won't share the name yet, but they mm-hmm. sent us a link to an etsy site and
1: oh you something good is so good oh, <laughs> i lost
0: my mind digging through the etsy site it is all pdfs of old documents from like the 1500s all the way up through today and it can be on anything i got one about demonology which includes the Dictionnaire infernal and i now have a pdf copy so would you consider that good.
1: a personal expense or like a work expense <laughs> for Willing and Fable? Um, I'll let you know when tax season comes around. Well, because if it's a work expense for Willing and Fable, then according to the company bylaws, um, which were added right now, um, that that PDF needs to be stored on the Willing and Fable. Uh,
0: Google <laughs> drive. It's so cool it's awesome so i'm <laughs> geeking out about um old timey documents so that's my something good i will put the link to that etsy site on our recommendations page on our website willingandfable.com
1: and if everyone could please tell me which i should buy because i made the mistake of just adding all the things i liked into the cart and then i looked back And I was like, oh, that's excessive, Rowan. You need to slow your roll one present at a time. Yeah. (laughs) So, Rowan, tell me something Mm -hmm. good. So my something good this week is actually about you. (gasps) Uh, Tracy drew art of Astrid from our Afterlife
0: episode. You've been sitting on this for a while. I sent her this art so long ago, but... Actually, that's not that's not true. I sent you a new one like a couple days ago cuz I got I got bored and wanted to draw her again.
1: Yeah, I I have been sitting on it a while and I don't know why, but today I was just struck by the realization that that is the first piece of artwork someone has made for a character that I originated and wrote as well as played. Yeah, and that makes my heart so happy. Plus, she's a sweet, sparkly girl, and she's got star freckles. I love freckles. Astrid. <laughs> it's true. We we chatted about the star freckles mm-hmm. in your in your house. Yes, when you came to
0: visit. So I'm so glad you like Astrid drawings. I'll probably keep drawing her. I love that sweet baby girl. Our pastel angel. (laughs) Our pastel little little afterlife babe. I just want to see her holding a cup of coffee. I love it.
1: If you have no idea what we're talking about, everyone, please go back to our afterlife episode Mm -hmm. in which Astrid from Afterlife Enterprises gives everyone a tour of Valhalla. And head to our Instagram, Willing and Fable, to see that artwork by Tracy and tons more because... Whenever Tracy makes art, I just post it, basically. <laughs> I appreciate it. You're my hype man.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, hype man. So.
1: I think it's time to close it out. Thank you so much for coming to Wheat and Farrow, a podcast where we talk about ancient grains, local leavening, and why bread has staying power. <laughs> okay. okay, everyone. should thank it have you. been carbohydrates? No, it's
0: perfect the way it is. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend.
1: Mm, or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ashe, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.